0: Episode 104, The Gibeonites Avenged In our original first few episodes of Message to Kings, we cruised through biblical history and we barely covered, if at all, Cain and Abel. Yet this was a significant event and many spiritual concepts were introduced in Genesis chapter 4. After Adam and Eve were ejected from the Garden of Eden, Eve gave birth to Cain and later another son named Abel. Cain became more of a gardener, and Abel was a shepherd. And when it came time to give sacrifices to God, Abel gave a pleasing sacrifice to God, while Cain did not. Cain grew so jealous, he ended up killing his brother. Cain killed righteous Abel, who was pleasing in God's sight. Great way to start humankind, huh? Adam and Eve sin, now their firstborn son, kills their secondborn son. Crazy crazy. But what happens next is quite profound and has its echoes all throughout history. Genesis 4.9 Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. God told Cain that his brother's blood cried out to God from the ground. I mean, seriously, that's freaky. His blood cried out to God. How is this possible? Abel's considered the first martyr in all of human history, and when he was killed, his blood cried out to God. In this episode, we're going to talk about what happens when the innocent are slain. The land is cursed as a result of innocent bloodshed in the entire scene of David and the Gibeonites avenged, and an alternate ending to the story. All right. Think with me here. God has given governments the authority to enact righteous judgments. Say there was a serial killer in the state of Texas and he was caught and he was unmistakably guilty. Because it is Texas, he would face the death penalty and would die by electrocution or some other means. Hopefully before his death, he would receive Jesus. This would not prevent his death penalty unless God intervened in some way. This serial killer received the death penalty, and in the eyes of the courts and the laws they had been established, he received justice for his actions. I like to see it like this. There is in heaven a judicial court. In this court the deeds of man are weighed. They attract heaven's blessings as long as they walk with God, people, cities, governments and even nations receive God's blessings. Of course, God is sovereign and there is always an overriding story, but generally speaking there is a demonic or angelic attraction based upon faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God. When a sin occurs, it can be considered a misdemeanor, where God warns a person or walks them through something. But if a sin is great and overarching and defies God's law, it's like a felony and a man must face a form of judgment. If we walk with god we have the benefit of having jesus as our arbiter or lawyer and mercy can be given if we walk with god sometimes we have to face the physical consequences but the spiritual ones can be foregone because he's already taken away our sins if we run to him so back to our fictitious example of the serial killer he committed a group of heinous crimes and he deserves a lifetime in prison or the death penalty, depending on where you are in the death penalty issue. But what separates this situation from a soldier in a war in Iraq, right now, it's the context. The heinous killer killed innocent people and deserved judgment. The soldier in Iraq is doing his best to protect the people of the land during a time of war. There is a very serious distinction between the soldier and the serial killer. The serial killer is deserving of judgment for the killing of innocents. So I say all of this because we arrive at one of those hard-to-understand chapters in our story, which is titled, The Gibeonites Avenged, in many Bibles. I want to discuss the causes and effects of this scene, and also like to suggest a different outcome. Hebrews 11.4 By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous, when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks, though he is dead. Freak me out again! The Apostle Paul says that Abel still speaks today, which is a clear reference to the innocent blood that was spilt that cries out. So what happened was about 40 plus years ago Saul became king. And one of the first things he did was to eject, bully, steal from, and eventually kill off as many of the Gibeonites that he could. The thing was Saul grew up quite close to Gibeah. In fact, Gibeah was part of his tribe's inheritance, and they ended up cohabiting their lands with the Gibeonites and the Philistines when they encroached on their lands as well. The Gibeonites were the original inhabitants of Gibeah, and they deceived Joshua when he invaded the Promised Land and Israel made a treaty with them specifically promising to not put them to death. Joshua and the Israelites basically enslaved them, but refused to put them to death, for this was their promise to them, We will not put you to death. Fast forward to the time of Saul. Saul coveted Gibeah as his capital, and seized all the territory he could from the Gibeonites. Oh, we probably had contacts because they probably allied themselves with the Philistines or something like that. But Saul broke the treaty made by Joshua and went bloodthirsty and began slaughtering the Gibeonites once he gained power. And interesting enough, Saul probably didn't think anything of it because there was no ramifications or priests warning him or prophets coming to him. It's an interesting case of gross sin which was hidden from him. I see it like this. The devil was building his power base. He kind of liked Saul and held this piece of legal permission in his back pocket. For he knew that when Cain killed Abel, his innocent blood cried out and it led to a curse on Cain and the land. In this case, the curse would befall the land of Israel. For the promise was made by Joshua and the elders of Israel. The sin would fall on all of Israel. The devil kept this in reserve for when it would help him the most. Why play all your cards when Saul is king? After all, he had a demon who controlled him. Why bother exercising authority when you possess the one in authority? So before we get to the curse upon the land, this is a good spot to explain how 2 Samuel just goes out of order. It's like the book of Judges, 2 Samuel's last chapters were written more like an appendix And it's probably some years after the sin with Bathsheba, and things seem to be settling in Israel when a famine strikes the land of Israel, whose culprit was the devil who decided to pull his legal card on Israel. Judgment has been made. So before we completely go there, Israel's an interesting place. There's no significant body of water that meanders through the land like the Nile or the Mississippi River in the United States. There was rivers, but Israel is a mountainous and hilly place. Israel back then was an extremely dependent place on the former and latter rains. Without the rains, the land would die. Doesn't this sound like God? I mean, Israel's the geographically one of the worst places to defend on the planet, and has no huge waters to keep it watered. It's a land chosen by God, but it was a land that could only be blessed with the hand of God upon it. So when there was no rain, the country suffered extremely. Alright, here we go. Second Samuel 21 During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It's on account of Saul and his bloodstained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were the survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? All right. So, famine has been going on for years, and Israel was suffering. David learns from God it was because of Saul's innocent murder of the Gibeonites. And David goes to the Gibeonites, and I love his words, How can I make atonement? Oh my, what words? How shall I make atonement? At first, I love these words, but I think it is a clue as to David's error. David said, How shall I make atonement? He said, How shall I, not we, or God, but how shall I make atonement? 2 Samuel 21.4 The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, Let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. Okay, this is nuts. I mean, really, I think it's nuts. They don't want any civil damages, just the death of seven of Saul's descendants. And this is where I think the story goes south. Not sure where David was at the moment. Probably still freaking out from his own sin and worrying about his family because of Nathan's word. But here we go, 2 Samuel 21, 6. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of an oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ai's daughter, Rispah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merib, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillah, the Mahathite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Isn't that crazy? David surrendered seven of Saul's grandsons. So check this out. Two of the grandsons were of Mizpah, the daughter of Saul's concubine. The other five grandsons were the sons of Merab, the sister of Michael, David's wife. So these would have actually been David's nephews. What a horrible uncle he was. There was clearly a famine, and there was clearly a curse on the land. And there was clearly sin committed in Israel. But I'd like to suggest our hero David didn't have to give blood for blood. I'd like to suggest there was a greater answer for David, who was notorious for flipping traditions and curses on their head. David had to have known what Moses declared in Exodus 34 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Jesus would later declare on the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. David saw the famine as more of a legal matter that had to be resolved, but he failed to consult the greater authority, God, in heaven. The account continues, for a lead-in, Rispah, the daughter of Saul's concubine, whose name actually means pavement, for her sorrow is as low as the pavement, which is quite appropriate for what ends up going on next. 2 Samuel 10.10 10, Rispa, daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Ai's daughter Rispa, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. So I just find this scene remarkable because David is the one who always flips tradition. But in this scene, he said, What may I do? What may I do to make atonement? Ah, uh, He missed it on this one. Mercy always trumps judgment. Grace always wins. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I can't help but reflect upon this scene. I have to believe David could have done something different. We learn in a future scene that he cries out for mercy and God grants it when a plague hits the land. Mercy always trumps judgment. It's the nature of mercy. It's the abundant grace of God that overwhelms non-believers, and it's the kindness that brings us to repentance. We have plenty of modern-day revelations of this scene. Here is just one of them. In America today, many Christians point out abortion and the 60 or so million aborted babies that has occurred since the judicial ruling of Roe v. Wade. They say that their blood cries out from the ground, just like righteous Abel's, and invites judgment on America. Well... They're right. And this is biblical. This is a biblical statement. America is deserving of horrible judgment, and there is a curse upon the land. But I like to think differently. Did David really have to surrender the seven grandsons of Saul to be slain to atone for blood? Of course not. That was what the Gibeonites wanted, but David gave it to them. Does America deserve judgment? Yes. Yes. But does the Christians of today have to surrender their grandchildren to chaos to atone for the sins of the past? No. If we really want judgment, there's plenty of it, at the end of the age. Just read Revelation. It's coming. But we're not there yet. I like to believe instead of living in the worst time in human history, we live in the greatest time in human history, when the world will be impacted by the greatest revival in all of human history, And we as Christians today get to be a part of it. In a time period of human history where millions of prayers have been prayed for thousands of years that haven't been answered yet, we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus when he pours out the bowls of the prayers of the saints from heaven and answers thousands of year old prayers and uses us to fulfill his purpose. Why can't our generation be the one that brings about the greatest harvest in human history? So this is just one example of not going with the standard answer. David should have pleaded with God. He should have fasted. If this didn't work, he should have called a national fast in the famine. And he shouldn't have surrendered the seven grandsons of the man he worked so hard to honor during his life. And there's an, another interesting parallel with today. David allowed false justice to reign by surrendering these men to the Gibeonites, and in America we see false justice as well. Like I mentioned, a bad interpretation of a law by the US Supreme Court called Roe v. Wade allowed for abortion. This decision was man's decision, and it wasn't God's decision. If the Supreme Court would have prayed and asked God, he would have given them a different option or verdict. If David would have pursued God further, he would have been given a way out of man's judgment. For God's judgment always outweighs and trumps man's judgment. When it comes to justice, where most fail is that they fail to realize the intent of the law, and they get caught up with the interpretations and the machinations of the legal system over hundreds of years of codes and law books and traditions. Laws, simply put, were created to protect man and keep order. Justice is for the purpose of keeping order in society. David may have brought about order by surrendering the seven grandsons of Saul, but it would have been better found by prayer and surrender, which brought about mercy and grace. Surrender to a higher court in heaven trumps the lower desires of man's justice. It always does. So in this age, when we deserve judgment, do we preach it and ask for it? Instead, we teach people the love of God and demonstrate it to them. And let us always remember there's a greater court in heaven, which intercedes on our behalf and is always on the side of humility and grace. We have a saying in our house, When someone wrongs you, do not Hammurabi them. For it was Hammurabi's law code that declared an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. For if someone wrongs you, do not Hammurabi them back, but instead do what Jesus did, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile for them, love them, and show them kindness. We in this episode, with the verse and a statement, let us remember in this age what God told Moses so long ago. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, And faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. If we truly believe, we need to believe our God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as war restarts with the Philistines and David's family struggles pick up. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com or if you want to chat, email us at Kings at gmail.com.